Chapter Eight of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Eight: Mary Ballard's Discovery. Peter Junior's mind was quite made up to go his own way and leave home to study abroad. But first he would try to convert his father to his way of thinking. Then there was another thing to be done. Not to marry, of course. That, under present conditions, would never do. But to make sure of Betty, lest someone come and steal into her heart before his return. After his talk with his father in the bank, he lay long into the night, gazing at the shadowed tracery on his wall cast by the full harvest moon shining through the maple branches outside his window. The leaves had not all fallen, and in the light breeze they danced and quivered, and the branches swayed, and the shadows also swayed and danced delicately over the soft gray wallpaper, and the red-coated old soldier standing stiffly in his golden frame. Often in his waking dreams and afterlife he saw the moving shadows silently swaying and dancing over gray and red and gold, and often he tried to call them out from the past to banish things he would forget. Long this night he lay planning and thinking. Should he speak to Betty and tell her he loved her? Should he only teach her to think of him? not with the frank liking of her girlhood, so well expressed to him that very day, but with the warm feeling which could cause her cheeks to redden when he spoke? Could he be sure of himself to do this correctly? To do this discreetly? Or would he overstep the mark? He would wait and see what the next day would bring forth. In the morning he discarded his crutch, as he had threatened, and walked out to the studio, using only a stout old blackthorn stick he had found one day when rummaging among a collection of odds and ends in the attic. He thought the stick was his father's, and wondered why so interesting a walking stick, or staff, it could hardly be called a cane, he thought, and because it was so large and oddly shaped, should be hidden away there. Had his father seen it, he would have recognized it instantly as one that had belonged to his brother-in-law, Larry Kildine, and it would have been cut up and used for lighting fires. But it had been many years since the elder had laid eyes on that knobbed and sturdy stick, which Larry had treasured as a rare thing in the new world and a fine antique specimen of genuine blackthorn. It had belonged to his great-grandfather in Ireland, and no doubt had done its part in cracking crowns. Betty, kneading bread at the table before the kitchen window, spied Peter Jr. limping warily up the walk without his crutch, and ran to him, dusting the flour from her hands as she came. Lean on me. I won't get flour on your coat. What did you go without your crutch for? It's very silly of you. He essayed a laugh, but it was a self-conscious one. I'm not going to use a crutch all my lifetime. Don't you think it? I'm very well off without, and almost myself again. I don't need to lean on you, Will, just for fun. He put his arm about her and drew her to him. Stop, Peter Jr., don't you see you're getting flour all over your clothes? I like flour on my clothes. It will do for stiffening. He raised her hand and kissed her wrist where there was no flour. You're not leaning on me. You're just acting silly. You can hardly walk. You're so tired. Come all this way without your crutch. I think you're foolish. If you say anything more about that crutch, I'll throw away my cane, too. He dropped down on the piazza and drew her to the step beside him. I must finish kneading the bread. I can't sit here. You rest in the rocker a while before you go up to the studio. Father's up there. He came home late last night after we were all in bed. She returned to her work, and after a moment called to him through the open window. There's going to be a nutting party tomorrow. And we want you to go. We're going out to Carter's Grove. We've got permission. Everyone's going. Peter Jr. rubbed the moisture from his hair and shook his head. 
He must get nearer her, but it was always the same thing, just a happy game, with no touch of sentiment. No more, he thought gloomily, than if she were his sister. What are you all going there for? Why nuts, Goosey? Didn't I say we were going nutting? I don't happen to want nuts. No, he wanted her to urge and coax him to go for her sake. But what could he say? He left the seat, took the side path around to the kitchen door, and drew up a chair to the end of the table, where she deftly manipulated the sweet-smelling dough, patting it and pulling it, and turning it about until she was ready to put the shapely balls in the pans, holding them in her two firm little hands with a slight rolling motion as she slipped each loaf in its place. It had never occurred to Peter Jr. that making bread was such an interesting process. Why do you fuss with it so? Why don't you just dump it in the pan any old way? That's the way I'd do. But he loved to watch her pink-tipped fingers carefully shaping the loaves, nevertheless. Oh, because. Good reason. Well, the more you work it, the better it is, just like everything else. And then, if you don't make good-looking loaves, you'll never get a handsome husband. Mother says so. She tossed a stray lock from her eyes, and opening the oven door, thrust in her arm. My, but it's hot. Why do you sit here in the heat? It's a lot nicer on the porch in the rocker. Mother's gone to town, and... I'd rather sit here with you, thank you. He spoke stiffly and waited. What could he say? What could he do next? She left him a moment, and quickly returned with a cup of butter. You know, I'd stop and go out in the cool with you, Peter, but I must work this dough I have left into raised biscuit, and then I have to make a cake for tomorrow, and cookies? Something to do in this house, I tell you. How about tomorrow? I don't believe I'd better go. All the rest of the world will be there, and... Only our little crowd. When I said everybody, you didn't think I meant everybody in the whole world, did you? You know us all. Do you want me to go? There will be enough others. She tossed her head and gave him a sidelong glance. I always ask people to go when I don't want them to. He rose at that and stood close to her side, stooping, looked in her eyes, and for the first time the color flamed up face because of him. I say, do you want me to go? No, I don't. But the red he had brought into her cheeks intoxicated him with delight. Now he knew a thing to do. He seized her wrist and turned her away from the table and continued to look into her eyes. She twisted about, looking away from him. But the burning blush made even the little ear she turned toward him pink, and he loved it. His discretion was all gone. He loved her, and he would tell her, now, she must hear it. And slipping his arm around her, he drew her away and out to the seat under the old silver-leaf poplar tree. "'You're acting silly, Peter Jr., my bread will spoil and get too light, and my hands are covered with flour, and, and I'll sit you right here and talk to you a bit. If the bread spoils and gets too light and everything burns to a cinder. She started to run away from him, and his preemptory tone changed to pleading. Please, Betty dear, just hear me this far. I'm going away, Betty, and I love you. No, sit close to me and be my sweetheart. Dear, it isn't the old thing, it's love, and it's what I want you to feel for me. I woke up yesterday and found I loved you. He held her closer, and lifted her face to his. You must wake up too, Betty. We can't play always. Say you'll love me, and be my wife, some day, won't you, Betty? She drooped in his arms, hanging her head and looking down on her flowery hands. Say it, Betty, dear, won't you? Her lip quivered. I don't want to be anybody's wife. And anyway, I liked you better the other way. Why, Betty? Tell me why. Because, lots of reasons, I must help my mother, and I'm only seventeen, and most eighteen, I know, because, well, anyway, mother says no girl of hers shall marry before she's of age, and she says that means twenty-one, and, that's all right, I can wait. Kiss me, Betty. But she was silent, with face turned from him. 
Again he lifted her face to his. I say, kiss me, Betty, just one. It was a stingy little kiss. You know I'm going away, and that is why I spoke to you now. I didn't dare go without telling you this first. You're so sweet, Betty. Someone might find you out and love you, just as I have, only not so deeply in love with you. No one could. But someone might come and win you away from me, so I must make sure that you will marry me when you are of age, and I come back for you. Promise me. Where? Why, Peter Jr., where are you going? Betty removed his arm from around her waist and slipped to her own end of the seat. There, with hands folded decorously in her lap, with heightened color and serious eyes, she looked shyly up at him. He had never seen her shy before. Always she had been merry and teasing, and his heart was proud that he had wrought such a miracle in her. I'm going to Paris. I mean to be an artist. He leaned toward her, and would have taken her in his arms again, but she put his hands away. Will your father let you do that? Her eyes widened with surprise, and the surprise nettled him. I don't know. He's thinking about it. Anyway, a man must decide for himself what his career will be, and if he won't let me, I'll earn the money and go without his letting me. Wouldn't that be the best way anyway? What do you mean, to go without his consent? Of course not, Goosey. She laughed and was herself again, but he liked her better the other way. To earn the money and then go, it, it would be more, more as if you were in earnest. My soul, do you think I'm not in earnest? You think I'm not in love with you? Instantly, she was serious and shy again. His heart leaped. He loved to feel his power over her thus. Still, she tantalized him. I'm not meaning about love. That's not the question. I mean it would look more as if you were in earnest about becoming an artist. No, the real question is, do you love me? Will you marry me when I come back? She was silent, and he came near. Say it. Say it. I must hear you say it before I leave. Her lips trembled as if she were trying to form the words, and their eyes met. Yes, if, if... Then he caught her to him, and stopped her mouth with kisses. He did not know himself. He was a man he had never met the like of, and he gloried in himself. It seemed as if he heard bells ringing out in joy. Then he looked up and saw Mary Ballard's eyes fixed on him. Peter Jr., what are you doing? Her voice shook. Um, I'm kissing Betty. I see that. We are to be married some day, and... You are precipitate, Peter Jr. Then Betty did what every woman does when her lover is blamed. No matter how earnestly she may have resisted him before, she went completely over to his side and took his part. He's going away, Mother. He's going away to be gone, perhaps for years, and I've... I've told him yes, Mother, so it isn't his fault. Then she turned and fled to her own room, and hid her flaming face in the pillow and wept. Sit here with me a while, Peter Jr., and we'll talk it all over, said Mary. He obeyed her, and looking squarely in her eyes, manfully told her his plans, and tried to make her feel as he felt, that no love like his had ever filled a man's heart before. At last she sent him up to the studio to tell her husband, and she went in and finished Betty's task, putting the bread, alas, too light by this time, in the oven, and shaping the raised biscuit which Betty had left half-finished. Then she paused a moment to look out of the window, down the path where the boys and little Janie would soon come tumbling home from school, hot and hungry. A tear slowly coursed down her cheek, and, following the curves, trembled on the tip of her chin. She brushed it away impatiently. Of course it had to come. That was what life must bring. But, ah, not so soon. Not so soon. Then she set about preparations for dinner without Betty's help. That, too, was what it would mean, sometime, to go on doing things without Betty. She gave a little sigh, and at the last instant, an arm was slipped about her waist, and she turned to look in Bertrand's eyes. 
Is it all right, Mary? Why, yes, that is, if they'll always love each other as we have, I think it ought not to be too definite an engagement, though, until his plans are more settled. What do you think? You are right, no doubt. I'll speak to him about that. Then he kissed her warm, flushed cheek. I declare, it makes me feel as Peter Jr. feels again to have this happen. Ah, oh, Bertrand, you never grew up. Thank the Lord. Then Mary laughed. After all, they had been happy. And why not Betty and Peter? Surely the young had their rights. Bertrand climbed back to the studio, where Peter Jr. was pacing restlessly back and forth, and again they talked it all over, until the call for dinner came, when Peter was urged to stay but would not. No, he would not see Betty again until he could have her quite to himself. So he limped away, feeling as if he were walking on air in spite of his halting gait, and Betty from her window watched him pass down the path and off along the grassy roadside. Then she went down to dinner, flushed and grave, but with shining eyes. Her father kissed her, but nothing was said, and the children thought nothing of it, for it was quite natural in the family to kiss Betty. End of chapter 8 Recording by Chelsea Baker